This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello and welcome to Countrywide. My name is Annie Brown. I'm broadcasting from our Wodonga studio near the banks of the Murray River, home to the Wiradjuri, Waveru and Dadarawa people. Hope you're well wherever you find yourself today. Now this week, the federal government announced a rewrite of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and every basin state is on board except for Victoria. And the reactions? They've been mixed. The plan was supposed to be completed uh, and it's not completed and we've got to get it back on track. I'm extremely disappointed that um, the Minister's taken the approach of going to buybacks on the 450. Also, the bee parasite Varroa mite has been detected in the Riverina and Sunraysia districts of New South Wales this week, taking the total number of cases in the state to 215. Australia was the last continent to have a detection of this destructive parasite. But how did it even get here to Australia? We'll talk more about the investigation underway. And Australia is starting to export avocados to India. And which Australian do you get to be the face of Australian avocados? It's Brett Lee charging in from the city end. It's not the first time Aussies have put all their hopes on Brett Lee. Oh, that's close. That's out. Surely he's on a hat-trick again. That was the famous pace bowler will again campaign in India this summer. But this time, it'll be avocado growers hoping to get a taste of his consistency on the subcontinent. We'll talk more about opening up that market for avocados today. And there's a new feature at your local rodeo. Mini bulls are just fat and they are fun to ride. I love riding mini bulls because they're cute and you can sit on them and they won't fly in the chute and all that. We'll take you up close to a mini bull as well today. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Water Minister Tanya Plibersek revealed this week that she had broken a new deal for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan between the federal government, New South Wales, South Australian, Queensland and the Australian Capital Territory. It will seek to return 450 gigalitres of water to the environment with irrigation licence buybacks and extend the deadline to December 2027. That's three years later than the original plan. In return, those states have agreed to put all options on the table for water recovery, which includes the federal government purchasing water from willing sellers. Now, Victoria says it won't join the new basin plan deal. The water minister says it's appropriate to now introduce water buybacks to the plan. Well, I've consistently said that all options to deliver the plan are on the table, and I've said from the beginning it was likely that voluntary water purchase would be part of that. We've had a very good look at the likelihood of uh, the water saving projects, the water efficiency projects that we've still got in the pipeline, delivering all of the water required for the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I, I don't believe it's possible to deliver the plan with infrastructure projects only. And I'm saying we need genuinely all of those options on the table. That means voluntary water purchase. It means we're happy to look at Uh, new projects if there are any that can be completed by 
December 2026, uh, we're looking at um, water operation rules. There's a, a range of approaches that we need to consider, but voluntary water purchase is very definitely going to be one of them. Where do you see the, the buybacks going to come from? Who would potential sellers be? Well, we're, we're quite a way now from the first water purchase that we'll do. Um, we've still got to do the reconciliation on the infrastructure projects that are being built. We need to make sure we know exactly how much water they're going to deliver. Once we've determined that, we'll make an assessment about how much water we might need to buy. We're going to uh, spread that water purchase over a number of years as well. So we're not going to, to hurry into the market for this next phase of the plan. We do have a pretty good idea of the fact that there are willing sellers out there because we, we have actually been buying water this year under another part of the plan, the Bridging the Gap target part of the plan. We've been able to test the market in that way. We've we've seen that there are willing sellers in a number of different parts of Australia. So we're looking at that uh, we're looking at that right now. With the timing, I guess you're looking at industries that are not doing so great at the moment, particularly the wine grape industry is is struggling hard. With the, the timing of this, is it about coming in at a time when there are motivated but also possible sellers with no other option financially and taking advantage of that? Well, no, not really. I, the, the timing is dictated by the fact that the plan was supposed to be completed uh, and it's not completed. We've got to get it back on track. So the reason that we're talking about Uh, finalising the water infrastructure projects, the reason that we're talking about other ways of delivering on the objectives of the plan is because we've got to get it back on track. And Over the last decade, virtually no progress has been made. All of the water that's been recovered for the environment, uh, about 84% of all water recovery has been done under Labor governments. Just 16% of water that's been recovered towards these targets was recovered over the decade of Liberal and National Government. Can you understand the, the concerns of those industries, those communities that, that rely on that water when you are speaking of buybacks, what that could mean for them? Will there be consideration in that on any potential negative impacts on those communities that, that need access to that water? Yeah, absolutely. I do understand it. And I've spoken to a lot of people who've told me about their fears and uh, how they were impacted when you know, water's been taken out of their community in the past. So there's a few things I'd say. The first is this is about voluntary water purchase. Uh, we're not talking about any sort of compulsory acquisition. How can this plan work without Victoria if one state walks away and does its own plan? Can it still work? Well, yeah, because uh, what's on offer for Victoria is what's on offer for the other states, which is more time to deliver their water saving and infrastructure projects, more money to to do those projects and to provide any assistance to communities that are affected and more options on the table for how we get uh, to the objectives of the plan and and more accountability. Victoria is saying they don't support buybacks. Well, neither does New South Wales. But the simple fact is that I don't need the agreement of the Victorian or the New South Wales governments to do voluntary water purchase. Uh, I do need the support of the federal parliament to do that. There are Uh, There's legislation that will go into the parliament in the next few weeks uh, and those changes will be vital that um, anybody who supports the environment, anybody who supports the full delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan votes for those changes. Um, But as for the 
states and territories, I can engage in, in uh, voluntary water purchase without their support. And so the door remains open to Victoria if they want more time to deliver their projects, more money, uh, more options. I would very much welcome them signing on to the agreement. That's Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek there. Now, water buybacks have been a controversial topic when it comes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Irrigator groups have strongly been opposed to them, saying it destroys smaller communities along the basin when people sell up water for premium prices and leave town. Jeremy Morton is the chair of the National Irrigators Council and is a southern New South Wales irrigator based in Moolamine. And he said this news did not come as a surprise. I'm extremely disappointed that um, the minister's taken the approach of going to buybacks on the 450. The 450 current legislation explicitly says that you cannot buy back water for the purpose of that that project or that program. Um, so it's very, very disappointing that the minister yeah, is going to obviously introduce legislation to remove that, that requirement that buybacks don't don't apply to the 450. The federal New South Wales, South Australian, Queensland and ACT governments will be a part of this new deal. So Victoria's been excluded completely. What do you make of that? Well, I think that probably comes down to their very, very clear and explicit position that, you know, no more water recovery at all. So, you know, 450 or supply measures, there just won't be. The Victorian government is not interested in any further water recovery. So I think they haven't been able to get past that position that the Victorian government holds and all credit to the Victorian government for sticking to their guns. They they clearly understand that you know, water buybacks are highly destructive. They destroy the economic base of of you know, basin communities, their industries, you know, that's it's yeah, we we've seen enough over the delivery of the Basin Plan and previous water recovery programs that water buybacks are just so destructive to communities and industries. Although the majority of Victorian irrigators are happy their state government has stuck to their word and has not signed on to the deal which will include water buybacks, environmental groups have said it's self-destructive behaviour. Jono Lanoz is the Chief Executive of Environment Victoria and he says the New Deal is promising but Victoria will be disadvantaged by being isolated. This is one of the very peculiar things. So the Victorian government was the chief proponent of this idea that we didn't need to recover quite so much water, we could actually provide essentially an offset uh, through a range of rule changes and engineering uh, interventions in the floodplain. They negotiated to... Uh, receive a whole lot of Commonwealth money to deliver these offset projects. They haven't been able to do them on time. And if those offset projects don't materialise, more water, in fact, will be recovered from Victorian farmers than otherwise. By opting out of this deal, the Victorian government essentially uh, rules itself out from receiving any further funding to deliver these offsets. So, ironically, the outcome of Victoria staying outside the tent on this will be more buybacks in Victoria rather than less. It seems to me that the only interests the Victorian government are serving at the moment are those of water barons uh, who benefit from having a water market in which the Commonwealth is not a competitor. That doesn't ultimately benefit communities who live alongside and depend on a healthy river. Uh, It doesn't actually have the outcome of reducing buybacks in the long term, as as I said. 
Uh, and it also means that large allocations of structural adjustment money that Tanya Plibersek has said will be made available, the Victorian government will have no say in how that is distributed to communities. So it does seem that they have cut their nose off to, despite their face. Here at ABC Rural, I've heard and I've spoken to a lot of farmers who are really opposed to water buybacks resuming as well in Victoria. Do you know a lot of farmers who would want to sell their water back to the government? I've certainly spoken to individual farmers who have tried and have been blocked by the Victorian government's policy. Uh, but we also can just look at the record every time the Commonwealth has gone into the bar- into the market to buy water, those uh, tenders have been oversubscribed. They have had more people wanting to sell them water than they've been in the market for at that particular point in time. The Commonwealth did go back into the market earlier this year. It'll be interesting to see the results of that. But if you don't want to sell your water, don't. John O'Lanoz, the Chief Executive of Environment Victoria there. Now, 14 months after it was first detected in sentinel hives at the port of Newcastle, the New South Wales Varroa mite outbreak has now spread to the Riverina and Sunraysia. Varroa mite is a parasite that is considered to be one of the greatest threats to Australia's honey and honeybee pollination plant industries. Australia was the last continent to have detections of the mite. The Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales has confirmed that the infested hives on almond pollination sites in the Riverina and Sunraysia districts came from the Kempsey area on the state's mid-north coast, where there is now a growing cluster. Red eradication and purple surveillance zones have now been created around both of those infested premises, taking the total number of cases in New South Wales to 215. But how did Varroa mite even get to Australia in the first place? The Federal Department of Agriculture is investigating whether the suspected illegal import of two live bees into Australia led to the current Varroa mite outbreak. Josh Becker reports. While many beekeepers are anxious about their future due to the outbreak of Varroa mite, for some it's important to look back and investigate how it arrived. The ABC has confirmed there's an active investigation of illegal import of live bees into Australia. And Danny Laferve is the CEO of the Australian Honey Bee Industry Council. He says it's important for the industry to find out the origin of the varroa mite outbreak. Uh, it's great news that there's an investigation into how varroa mite got into Australia. It's really important that we do uh, look into this and establish what that entry pathway was so that we can identify it and make sure that we can shut that pathway off to prevent any other diseases or viruses coming into the into Australian honeybee industry that we don't want. Has it been raised with you that there's a possibility the Varroa outbreak started from the illegal import of live bees? Look, what we know uh, in the Newcastle area where the ground zero was for this uh, detection is that there's multiple entries uh, or pathways that it could have come in through that area, not just importation. It could be through uh, some industrial areas where there's a lot of shipping containers and heavy equipment moved. There's commercial airports, RAF base. Uh, seaport. So there's multiple pathways that it could have come in. So it's really important that we do uh, look into this and and try and establish the best we can how it got here so then we can look at um, what our current biosecurity and surveillance programs are to make sure that we bolster it in those areas where the high risk um, of entry is to prevent anything else coming in. So in your mind, does it matter whether it came in through natural means via a ship or whether it came or whether it was illegally imported? 
uh, well, we need to identify that pathway so we can bolster our biosecurity. So if it was illegally brought in, well, we know then that we need to do a better job of having our sniffer dogs at the airports uh, sniffing for queen bees. Um, if it came in through an alternative pathway, well, then we know we need to look at having surveillance hives and better biosecurity surveillance measures in those areas where it where it's been identified as the pathway. So why would a breeder look to import live bees? Well, like any agricultural industry, improving genetics can help drive productivity. And while there are legal pathways to import queen bees in Australia, breeders need to go through the quarantine facility in Mickleham, Victoria. The technical expertise, costs and risks mean that it's very rarely used. Danny Laferve again. So no, we haven't had a lot of importation over the years of queen bees through the quarantine facilities because of the the cost of it and the onerous uh, protocols in place uh, to mitigate those risks of bringing pests and diseases in. Sarah Corcoran is the CEO of Plant Health Australia, the body that's responsible for the cost-sharing arrangement between the government and the 15 other industry groups affected by the Varroa outbreak. She says while it's not uncommon for an investigation to be launched after an outbreak, it is valuable for the industry. 100% I think it matters for the industry to know um, because that then allows them to prevent it from happening again. It also allows government agencies to prevent it from happening again. And it provides the opportunity for education and awareness. And, um, you know, that's really key. The, The last thing we want to see happen is for producers in any industry try and cut corners when it comes to importing breeding stock or particular genetics that they would like to incorporate into um, their production. What's the history here when it comes to either illegal importation of bees versus the the correct pathway to import bees in Australia? In terms of history, uh, there have been examples where apiarists have tried to circumvent the system and have illegally imported queen bees um, and had them on their person when entering Australia through the border. Um, there was a case in the early 2000s when that occurred and um, the person in question was um, stopped at the border when they were entering and um, noticed the inspector noticed that there was something unusual uh, in terms of their behaviours and decided to conduct a more thorough investigation. So in that instance, you know, the, the gut feeling was um, proven to be correct and I guess it's the ones that we know about um, which are good news stories because that's what we want to see happen. We don't want people bringing things in illegally. It's the ones that we don't know about, I guess, that are the most concerning. Sarah Kokoran, the CEO of Plant Health Australia, ending that report from Josh Becker. Now, if you were tasked with selling Australian avocados in India, where would you start? Off the back of a successful trial shipment, the industry is prepping for the first commercial trade to begin before the end of the year. And they're not leaving it to chance, though, bringing in the big guns to capture the attention of consumers, as Callie Buchanan reports. It's Brett Lee charging in from the city end. It's not the first time Aussies have put all their hopes on Brett Lee. Oh, that's close. That's out. Surely he's on a hat-trick again. That was plenty. The famous pace bowler will again campaign in India this summer. But this time, it'll be avocado growers hoping to get a taste of his consistency on the subcontinent. He's stepping up to the crease as the ambassador for Australian avocados, as the industry eagerly awaits the final trade protocol that will open up the market for the first time. 
Clayton Donovan's family farm was one of four that volunteered to participate in 10 trial shipments to India sent in July. We chose the fruit from um, what was convenient for us, where we're, what we're picking at that, at that stage. Um, we have every confidence that all of our blocks would be able to be sent over there, but we chose one farm in particular because we know it had very good quality and yeah, very good yields. And my understanding is that it went with flying colours, not a single note back, not a single problem. That must be a point of pride. Yeah, it was very exciting for us. Yeah, 10 out of 10. Yeah, pat ourselves on the back for that one. The 2,000 trays of the Haas variety all came from around Childers in Queensland, a large growing area about 300 kilometres north of Brisbane. In particular, India had concerns about the Queensland fruit fly, the native insect that has meant markets like Japan and Thailand have been closed to the eastern states where it's found. But Mr Donovan says the trial proved the pest won't be a problem and it's a huge opportunity. Opening up India for us would be yeah, amazing. The only hurdle that we'll have to face at that stage is just building consumption over there. It is a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel where we have been going through those couple of uh, rougher years. Hopefully we can really develop that market into what it's not necessarily been promised to be but what it can be even with the amount of people over there even one in every family in the upper middle class or the middle class would be absolutely amazing for us or everyone in the avocado industry in Australia. India is a maturing market. One peak industry body Avocados Australia's chief of export market access Richard Magney said was currently served by imports from Tanzania, Mexico, Peru and New Zealand. There is a very fast-growing economy. The middle class is, is growing exponentially and we are seeing a fast uptick of purchasing and demand from the existing importers into India, like Tanzania uh, and Mexico and Peru and New Zealand. And we feel very confident, given that the, it is a vegetarian society, mostly, that we do expect to see with the efforts of our $600,000 we're going to invest in marketing with Brett Lee and the like to really push our brand, Australian brand into the uh, consumer-facing and e-commerce markets. He says the trade protocols are on track to be gazetted in coming weeks, with a market launch slated for November. Brett's going to be bowling a, an avocado down the pitch. An Indian batsman's going to smash it onto a piece of toast, and then uh, someone's going to enjoy that. Look, yeah, it's look. I'm not the I'm not the advertising guy. I, I'm just going to watch from afar and watch that all unfold. But yeah, it's very exciting and a bit of fun, bit of Bollywood style avocado action there. Um, and yeah, hopefully in, from November on, we see that all come to life, and it really helps our Australian brand and our exporters, you know, drive some progress into that market. Domestic consumption is also growing. But while consumers may have relished cheap avocados during a cost-of-living crisis, Mr Magni said growers need stability. You know, the work of market access and the investment we're making to market access is to alleviate some of that domestic pain that we may see given that the volume is going to you know, triple potentially over the next three to five years. You know, We are seeing slow but uh, sure uptick in volume, in demand and, and consumption here in Australia. Yes, we will see maybe um, some challenges uh, ahead, but I think with these new markets opening up, uh, I think definitely we'll see that alleviate some of the volatility here in Australia. So while consumers may not see the dollar apiece deals of past years, just like in cricket, Mr Magney says the industry is playing the long game. As a nation, yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, for Queensland, it's extremely exciting. It's the first protocol market. It's the biggest market. It's the biggest opportunity. There's a huge wealth in that country and a, a, a huge growing demand for avocado. And Brett Lee, 
Olympic season. Got him. That's a turbine. That report from Callie Buchanan. Now, rodeos around Australia are getting a shake-up. A short, stumpy and fluffy shake-up, that is. Mini bulls have exploded in popularity and these fat beasts are here to stay. Lucy Cooper has this story. It's a bustling Friday night at the rodeo and the crowd are getting ready for the next rider. Bull riding has been called the most dangerous eight seconds in sport. And there's good reason for that. With bulls weighing 700 kilos and more, they are bred to buck. And buck, they do. Round to the left we go. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Back to the rodeo now and the chute has swung open. But that big, terrifying bucking action synonymous with professional bull riding is nowhere to be seen. Instead, a belted Galloway, a fluffy looking bull, trots out with a kid rider on top who's holding on and having a go. What everyone is watching is a mini bull event, which in recent years has exploded in popularity and the kids can't get enough. Mini bulls are just fat and they are fun to ride. I love riding mini bulls because they're cute and you can sit on them and they won't fly in the chute and all that. That's Riley Remfrey. He's 11 years old and has big aspirations. I want to be a champion bull rider one day. Adrian Roots is a mini bull breeder with an operation based just west of Rockhampton in Queensland. Getting the idea from some mates in the US, Adrian's business has expanded exponentially. When we started, we thought we were going to cart them around in a gooseneck. We thought six or eight bulls might have been enough. And um, just this year, we, my wife and I just bought a semi-trailer. Popularity has exploded, so much so that when I asked Adrian how many bulls he had now, he was just a bit hesitant to answer. Hopefully edit this and don't tell my wife, but we have over 100, yeah. Um, and and 40, 40 cows that we breed from, all miniature stuff. So, why do you say? Why do you want not want your wife to know? Oh well, it, it's a big feed bill every week. <laughs> but why do we have miniature bulls? The kids just prefer them. Don't get me wrong; it's a lot of a trend thing that, that kids just prefer them, and it gets more kids in the sport. But also, some of the animal welfare stuff now. Um, calf riding and steer riding is harder and harder to do because the, they don't get carted every weekend so they don't learn their job so um, we've got a lot of strict rules that we really try and follow and, and our bulls are all sort of educated so that we can do that. It's not just the animal welfare and the looks which make the mini bulls desirable but it's also the safety which they provide to young riders. There's guys who do a really great job breeding bucking bulls now, and which meant there was no young bulls that didn't buck. And we, a few years back now, we went through a generation of junior bull riders and things that did it pretty tough. Um, they got on a lot of real bucky stock, so I think everyone's just realised now we've just got to tone it back for our kids to make sure when they get to this type of event, when they're 18 and above, that they're still healthy enough to ride them. So are they just baby versions of the big bucking bulls? Uh, they're not a young bucking bull. A miniature bull is a miniature breed, so they have to be a, you know, a four-tooth animal we call, which is an age thing in cattle. Um, they've got to be four teeth and they have to be under 1.2 metres at the hips, so they're not bred bucking bulls as such because they grow too tall. Um, and that's what makes them so sensible for the kids is they are mature bulls that 
you know, they've lost all that young teenage fizz about them. And how would a mini bull rider describe them? Muscly, pretty big, like, um, some of them have horns, some down, um, fat. Yeah. River Richardson from Dolby said he much prefers mini bulls to steers and calves, which are commonly used for kids. I think mini bull riding is more—it's more fun. I think um, they buck more, and yeah, they just—it's fun. Personally, I would describe mini bulls as cute, fluffy, cuddly, adorable. But mini bull breeder Adrian Roots is quick to correct me. Especially for our younger groups, we try not to bring the ones with the attitude. But there is, they are bulls. There is some of them that um, they'll chase you around the pen and, and um, hook you just like a, a normal big bull. It's just more embarrassing when you get run over by such a little bull. That's Adrian Roots, a miniature bull breeder from Rockhampton, ending that story from Lucy Cooper. That's all the time we have for today on Countrywide. Thank you so much for joining me. You can read more rural news online. Head to abc.net.au forward slash news forward slash rural or you can always listen to your local country hours on the ABC Listen app. That's all from me. Take care.